Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hi, I'm Taryn Winterbrill, host of Bestseller TV on C-Suite Radio. On this show, I sit down with leading business authors, to find out what makes their books stand out from the crowd. With thousands of new business books and titles being published each year, we try to make it just a little bit easier for you to decide which ones are worth the read. Thanks for listening. This podcast is part of the C-Suite Radio Network, turning the volume up on business. Welcome to Bestseller TV. I'm Taryn Winterbrill. We're here with Anarctic Mike. He's the author of Leading at 90 Below Zero, Extreme Conditions, Extraordinary Results. Great to have you with us. Thank you for having me. So first off, Anarctic Mike, that's not your real name. <laughs> Mike Pierce is your real name, but tell us a little bit about Anarctic Mike, why that name and why the jacket? My background is I was a headhunter mm -hmm. and I was on a business trip to Bakersfield, California in okay. August of 2001. And I was teaching a course at the time for leaders and managers in my company that I was employed by. And the course was called Managing for Excellence. And I taught this course because my company realized the bigger and more expensive problem companies have is keeping people, not finding them. Keeping them, yeah, meaning fully engaged. Statistically speaking, about 30% of the workforce is fully engaged on a consistent basis, and that's terrible. Wow. So I'm teaching this course, and I'm, and I'm in Bakersfield, and I go into a bookstore of all places, and I see this unusual photograph on a cover of a business book. It was an old black and white photo of a bunch of people playing soccer okay. in the middle of an ice field. And it was the story about the 1914 endurance expedition to Antarctica that went awry, where 28 men got stranded for two years and all came home alive. Wow. I read the book and I'm like, what did the leader do to rally his people? Right. And so I bought the book figuring there had to be some connections to the real world. And I fell in love with the story. And then I used that story to teach the class that I was commissioned to teach. I literally threw the materials away that my company bought and I substituted them with photographs from this story. And that's how I got started on this fascination with Antarctic history. So that said, tell us about the genesis then of the book. You read that book in the bookstore Correct. and then this starts you on your own journey to head to Antarctica. But was, was the book idea first and then Antarctica or vice versa? Correct. It was running into the story. I'd never read any stories from Antarctic history prior to okay. August of 2001. When I ran into that story, that sort of hooked me on the subject. And then I went, a little bit bananas with it, I guess you'd say, <laughs> because I, start, I read more than a hundred books on the subject. No kidding. And I just found that these stories have such a connection. And as a headhunter, you know, one of my other things that I was thinking was, okay, I get the fact that one guy is crazy enough to try something that nobody had ever done before. How do you convince 27 other people to voluntarily do this. Right. And do what exactly though? Well, what they were attempting to do was to cross the continent on foot. Now, interestingly enough, it had never been done. Mm. And as soon as I got that far into the story, my thought was, this is what the world's best companies do. Every company that's excellent in their space is a company that's trying to do things 
that nobody else in the industry is doing. Right. For example, they're trying to solve a problem nobody's ever solved. They're trying to add value in ways nobody's ever added. They're trying to do things that their competition can't do or won't do. So even the fact that they were trying to do something that had never been done, I saw that as a metaphor. Okay. So then what happens next? You, you read 100 books on the, t- on the subject and you say, now I have to go there. Not quite that simple. Okay. I create this course for my employer. It becomes a hit within my company. So my thought was, well, I have to take this to 10,000 other companies. I've got to take it to the FedExes of the world, the association conferences and all these organizations. And I thought, well, how am I going to do this? So a friend of mine, this is where the car- the story gets to be a little bit of a cartoon, as if it's not already. <laughs> right. So a friend of mine says, well, I know somebody who wrote a book that can help you figure this out. And I'm like, well, who is this guy? Well, his name was Greg Godek. I didn't know this name from a hole in the wall. Apparently, Greg's book sold 3 million copies. He was on the Oprah Winfrey show. And I'm like, I'll call the guy. Okay. I guess Oprah put him over the top. Mm-hmm. So I called this guy completely out of left field in February of 2005. I introduced myself and I explained what I wanted to do. His first question was, have you ever been there? And I'm like, what do you mean have I ever been there? It's far away. It's expensive. Delta doesn't fly there. Yeah. Right? He goes, we got to go. You want to talk about these people from 100 years ago. You have to go hmm. or you don't have any credibility. And I'm like, okay. Fair point. Fair point. It's true. He, he was right. And, and I said, well, Greg, little did you know that next year, meaning 2006, for the first time ever, there's going to be a marathon run on an ice shelf 600 miles from the South Pole. Right. His reply, you're in. And I'm like, whoa, let's define you're in. I haven't run that far in 20 years. What am I going to eat? What am I going to wear? How am I going to acclimate to the temperature? And this is just to be clear. This is a marathon on ice. On an ice shelf. Correct. 600 miles from the South Pole. No one's ever done it. So 26 miles. 26.2 miles. Wow. Okay. And so... When I said, Greg, what do you eat? What do you wear? How do you acclimate? He said, Mike, stop and think about this. This is even better. The more you struggle physically, emotionally, mentally, in every way possible, the more closely you're walking in the shoes of your heroes. I'm like, well, he's right. Okay. So 15 minutes later, literally, I get home. I'm walking in my front door and I'm Mm -hmm. thinking, how am I going to get the hall pass for this one? Right. (laughs) So I explained this to my wife, Angela. You're going to do what? Right. When's the last time you ran that far? Well, 20 years ago when I was a college kid. Okay, well, how much is this going to cost us? Oh, don't worry. It's a good deal. How much? All in, it's about $25,000. Oh, great. Well, who gave you this bright idea? Well, this guy named Greg. Well, who's Greg? Right. I just met the guy on the phone All 10 minutes ago. All logical questions, I might add. Yeah, now, <laughs> I couldn't pick Greg out of a police lineup to save my life. Right. I literally didn't know what he looked like. He could have been in a phone booth halfway yeah. around the world. So I knew he was right. My wife's like, all right, Mike's made up his mind. He's going. So I think the fact that I actually went and did this was the most astonishing part of the story to most people, simply because a lot of people will talk a good game, right. but they won't follow they through. They won't execute. So this is all on ice? I mean, you're, you're running a marathon on sheets of ice? Well, I mean, interestingly kind of enough, Antarctica into... is the driest climate in the world. Okay. It precipitates less than two-tenths of an inch per year. Oh, no kidding. Okay. But ironically enough, the thickness of the ice shelf across the entire continent, the average thickness is more than a mile. Mm. From the top of the ice shelf where we were down to where the surface of the land is. And so, yeah, it's it's basically like, think of it as sand. Because it's like granular ice 
Okay, so, so it's not slippery? Are oh, you in no. special shoes? Oh, no, obviously? it's not slippery, okay. and it's not hard like ice would be. Okay. Because there's no water. It's yeah. so dry. It's right. so arid. So it's literally like running in thick sand. Huh. Like so dry ice? very difficult. Okay. Because the ground, if you've ever run in sand at the beach, the ground sucks up all the momentum. So it's very difficult to go. So you're one of the first nine people ever to run this Antarctic ice marathon, but then that's not enough for you, Antarctic Mike. (laughs) You go back and you do this again, but this time 62.1 miles. 100 kilometers, correct. So more than almost triple. It's two marathons plus 10 miles. Okay. Why? (laughs) Well, (laughs) what happened? To put it bluntly? it's It's kind of a funny story. I... A friend of mine is an Ironman Hall of Famer. His name is Bob Babbitt. I said, Bob, there's got to be a company out there that would want to sponsor me and get involved in these events. He says, well, I know a guy in New York who's in a PR firm, and they deal with cold weather, sports companies, and all this other stuff. So I I sent this guy. His name is Mark Beal. I sent Mark this 15-page love me or hate me email explaining my whole story. And he read it? And he read it. And he replied, and he said, we have a client that this story would fit for. They make cold weather clothing. So 2006 is the company's 100-year anniversary. So I said, Mark, I got an idea. 100-year anniversary, 100 kilometers Mm. in their gear. We'll take videos and photos, and they can use it to promote their stuff. Wow. So he pitches them, and they go, we love it. The guy's in. And I'm like, how far is 100 kilometers? Right. 62.1. I didn't know how far it was when I committed. Right. So that's how I ended up going back. Oh, my. (laughs) C-Suite Radio. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. You do this extraordinary, uh, you know, it's an extraordinary accomplishment in and of itself. And then you think to yourself, okay, this relates to the business world and I'm going to put this on paper and it'll all influence the course. I mean, that you were, that you were teaching, I mean, kind of what's, what's going on in your mind when you're there or did your, did, did your directive change once you went there and you experienced it? No, I knew the basic principles I wanted to put into the speaking engagement and into the book. Okay. The fact that I went to Antarctica, I right. saw it more as it would give me the credibility to tell the story because I'd been credit. there. Okay. And not the fact that I'd been there, the fact that I struggled there. Right. I struggled similarly to the people a hundred years ago. I okay. mean, clearly what I did paled in comparison to the difficulty a hundred years ago. Mm-hmm. You couldn't replicate that if you tried. But it was a taste of what mm. my heroes tasted 100 years okay. ago. So what was the biggest obstacle or the biggest challenge? It really wasn't that hard, I guess. <laughs> wow. Well, and I'll tell you why. Because I made the practice so hard. 
Huh. I trained in a commercial freezer. Right. That's one of the chapters I'm going to ask you. You just call it the freezer, which in and of itself is bananas to use your it's terminology. A, it's, a cold, it's a commercial cold storage Right. Facility. So to prepare for this event, these two events, you, you went into a freezer, right? Tell us about that. Back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, 59 feet at a time. Wow. Training for both a 26.2 mile marathon and a 100 kilometer ultra marathon. And the hardest part of the freezer was not the fact that it's cold. Mm-hmm. It was 22 degrees below zero. Okay. The hardest part was 59 feet. 59 feet is not a whole lot bigger than the room we're sitting in. What do you I mean, mean back what, and forth? What are you referencing when you say 59 feet? The distance, the dimensions, the length, the total distance between one wall and the other that uh, I had to run. Uh-huh. Because you can't put a treadmill in there. I see. Nothing digital or electric works at minus 22. Okay. So I had to go back and uh-huh. forth from one frozen metal wall yeah. to the other for hours and hours and hours. Oh, my. And the you're marathon, conditioning yourself. Yeah, because I learned something. I used to play ice hockey. And one of my coaches, when I was an 11-year-old kid in 1976, said to me, Mike, you'll play the game the way you practice. If you choose to make the practice harder, the game goes easier. Right. And I remembered that when I was in the freezer. And that was 30 years ago. Wow. So I'm sitting there in this freezer in 2005. I'm going back and forth. And I'm thinking, this is really difficult. And I thought, wait a minute. What if I look at difficulty the way my coach taught me 30 years ago. What if I see difficulty as an opportunity to make the game go easier? Yeah. And I know it worked because I ran a marathon in the freezer before I showed up in Antarctica. Unbelievable. But the thing is, I know it worked because when I finished the marathon, it took seven hours and 15 minutes. But my instinctive thought was this, is that all there is? Seven hours seemed more like seven minutes. Wow. Because I changed my paradigm and my definition of what difficulty is and what it isn't. For sure. So when you got there, was it easier than your practice sessions? <laughs> I mean, is that a fair word or um, it was just kind of what you expected? Well, it was a different difficult. I mean, look, we're doing things to our body we're not supposed to do. Mm-hmm. So it hurts. Yeah. I mean, after a while, it hurt to sit, stand, walk, right. run, crawl. It didn't matter. It just hurt. But you sort of learn to become comfortable being uncomfortable because the harder it was, the more attractive it was. Right. Because remember the reason that I went was to get a taste of what they did a hundred years ago. So of course I wanted it hard. Right. Um, so it, it, I guess the hardest part, if there was a hard part was the last five miles of the marathon. Cause we ran into a headwind mm. and it was 50 knots. Oh my. 50 knots is close to a hurricane force wind. And it was a straight on headwind for the last five miles. The last five miles took me more than two hours. So was it really, is it 90 below zero at some points? Not where we were and not during the time of the year we went. We went during our winter in the Northern hemisphere, which is um, their summer because you can't go in in the winter. There are parts of Antarctica that are a hundred degrees below zero and colder in the winter. Now, logistically, you couldn't even get there if you wanted to because it's literally pitch black. Okay. Our temperature was maybe minus 10. I know it sounds terrible <laughs> to the average viewer. Yeah. But in reality, it really wasn't that cold. Well, I do think it takes a special person. I certainly couldn't do it even if I was wearing 10 of the jackets. <laughs> um, so let's segue, Mike. You've done you know, this extraordinary experience, but how does it apply to the book? I mean, you, who, so who exactly is the book for? Is the book for existing leaders? Is, is it for uh, members of the seat suite who are looking to become leaders using the lessons that you acquired on this journey? Well, being a leader, I think, takes work. You mm-hmm. have to condition yourself. Right. And I think you have to help. If you're responsible for people, 
I mean, I really wrote the book for people who are responsible for others. Okay. A manager, a leader, a director, a vice president, a CEO. So it's for the C-suite. Correct. Okay. And so I wrote the book. The book basically parallels my speech. And I wrote the book for the purposes generally of people who heard me speak could take it home and then they could follow up and they could continue to visit the stories and get value from the time invested. Right. But the book really alludes to things that leaders can do to help the people on their team be more engaged. Mm, okay. And practicing difficulty is one of them. So what do you think the biggest takeaway is? I mean, not everybody can, they can read your book. I don't think a lot of people are going to go emulate what you did here. Correct. Understood. So what, what is the most important nugget? You think? If there was the most important nugget from the book, it would be the chapter in the book that talks about the gold medal. And the whole story behind the gold medal was kind of funny because when I got back from Antarctica, one of my rocket scientist brain surgeon friends mm -hmm. asked me, well, what was your time in the marathon? And I'm like, <laughs> I read that, right? Look, That's I went what to you the asked moon. Me? Right, exactly. Like, come on. Yeah. I mean, I lived in a freezer for two years, yeah. right? Time, I said seven hours and 15 minutes, nine runners, ninth place. Right. His reply, well, at least you came in the top 10. Like, oh, right. <laughs> right. Obviously you went to math class, yeah. but I said, listen, he's missing the point. Right. I didn't go down there to run faster to beat anybody. Yeah. I said, my goal was to be out there for 48 hours. Mm -hmm. I wanted to be out there as long as possible. Right. And yet I felt like an Olympic gold medalist, even though I finished in last place, because for me, the definition of my medal was not to beat anybody or to go fast. It was to be in an environment as long as I possibly could, that somewhat replicated the difficulty they did a hundred years ago. And so that's the, imp the important thing about the metal is to understand if I'm like, if we're in a company and you work for me, okay. And I want you to do a world-class job. I can't just expect you're going to be motivated by discipline, mm -hmm. by money, by other things. I have to know what's your metal, right? If I don't help you make a connection between the things you're doing every day and the role that you play in your job and the things that are most important to you, you're like a car that's not firing on all cylinders. Right. And the book goes into that. It's like, what is your gold medal? What are you striving for? You know, what is the ultimate? What is the ultimate achievement? And that, well, that helps leaders kind of navigate their employees. And that's what the book is about. It's really, it's incredible because there's uh this is a unique story, to put it mildly. Um, <laughs> it is. <laughs> and it's just a fascinating tale. But how you, you know, relate it and make this analogy to the business world and the lessons to be taken from your experience is it's incredible. Um and uh like we said, how many people would actually do this? So that's a testament to you as a human. And it's age. not just my story, yeah. it's the story that I talk about. Right. The, the 1914 endurance story where those 28 people got stranded. Right. The decisions that the leader, Ernest Shackleton, made were incredible. And he made some very difficult decisions. Right. That really made a difference in the outcome of the story, the fact that 28 people survived. Right. And I highlight those. And you're right. You take those. And, I mean, when you talk about challenges we face, you know, or the CEO, or excuse me, the C-suite faces compared to what you describe in this book, it seems relatively not so bad. And the biggest one is when they made a decision that they had to put the dogs down. Yeah. That, you probably remember reading that chapter. Yeah. That's, I mean, listen, I'm one of these people and I'm sure there are viewers mm -hmm. who love their pets yes. too much, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, we treat these pets like people. I know I do mine. Yeah. And yet they made it, Shackleton made the decision that all the dogs had to go down. And it's an example of a leader who was not afraid or unwilling to make a difficult decision that was in the best interest of the people. 
And probably the biggest thing that I see CEOs today struggling with is making difficult decisions that sometimes involve having a difficult conversation with an employee where you may have to let them go. Right. So that's the biggest mistake you think? I would say that's one of them that I see quite often because I can't, I can sit here and tell you story after story of people over the years who have left companies, good people who've left because the leader involved did not make a specific decision that he or she should have made. made, And then all of a sudden it starts to break the trust of the employees. Then the best employees go, this isn't right. How come my leader or leaders aren't making this decision or that decision? It's a slippery slope. And then they leave. Yeah. So, right. So this nips it in the bud uh, through the analogy of the, the Antarctic. And it's, uh, like I said, it's an incredible read and just, you know, your, your own, uh, you know, personal stories. We talked about the freezer, but all these um, individual anecdotes, uh, it's terrific. And any trips planned in the future back? The well, Antarctic? actually people ask me, all right, what's next? Like I have right. to do something stupid yeah, or this? crazier. Right. Actually, my real dream is to run a marathon in the coldest inhabited town in the world. Okay. It happens to be in Eastern Siberia. Wow. In January of this year, in 2018, it was minus 62 C. For the Americans who are watching this, that's minus 89 degrees Fahrenheit. Right. You can, you can survive in that temperature? People live there and go yeah, to school and work there. I guess. There. I guess. Nobody's ever run a marathon right. in this town called no, I mean, Oimia. Can you survive in the, in the elements outside? I mean, people are primarily indoors, I'd imagine. Yeah, they don't live in the streets and right. tents. Right. Uh, I guess we'll see. Has I anyone done it? <laughs> nobody's ever done it. Okay. Nobody's ever thought of it. Nobody's ever tried it. Wow. I really want to do it. All right. Well, keep us posted, Arctic <laughs> Mike. Um, congratulations on the book, and we look. Uh, forward to more of your adventures. Thanks for being here. Well, thanks for having me and let me tell the story. And if you'd like more information on the book, just head to our website, csweetbookclub.com. That's c-sweetbookclub.com. I'm Taryn Winterbrill. Thanks for watching. We'll see you next time right here on Bestseller TV. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-sweetradio.com.